0: The Reality Escape Pod is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Miles Nye, game designer, improviser, puzzler, and survivor challenge consultant. Miles, it is a pleasure to meet you.
1: Thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: I'm excited to chit chat.
2: I keep telling David about you, Miles, and I'm always surprised that you guys have never met because you guys know so many of the same people.
0: Basically, everyone I know from California is a puzzle person. Or my brother, who's not a puzzle person. He's pretty much the only person who hasn't told me that I needed to meet you.
2: I met Miles because Miles took me to my first escape room.
0: It was the alien
2: one. Pandoras, which is now called Flight of the Pandoras.
1: Yeah, it was you and me and Max.
2: Max Dawson from Survivor Worlds Apart.
1: There's a short list of room escapes that I didn't escape from. We did not escape from the Pandoras. That was an especially hard game. You're nice to say so.
2: It was like one of the hardest rooms in LA at the time.
1: I found it hard, but it's not like my entire enjoyment of the experience is wrapped up in whether or not I succeed or fail. And I think it's very much a credit to PG that you were like, you know what? I like this hobby. Like, you know, I probably didn't introduce you to it under the most auspicious circumstances, right? It could have been curated a little bit better.
2: <laughs> well, we did another one afterwards that we did.
1: Was that the one in the castle?
2: It was Castle by uh, Maze LA, I think. So
1: there's kind of like, I feel like sort of a level one joke for Room Escapes. This is not as true now as it once was, Uh, but there, are you know, parts of town that are a little bit out of the way, you know, where the rent is low and it's, you know, affordable to have a storefront.
0: Industrially zoned
1: industrially zoned and there's some sort of like bell or buzzer to get in and so you always joke like is this the first puzzle like trying to find the storefront right like that's sort
0: of if i had a dollar for every time i have either made or heard that joke you could afford some really premium escapes
1: <laughs> what is your uh here's uh, I, I would i will now take command of the question asking on the podcast go for it if you schedule some escapes out on a night with a friend what's your preferred number of escapes to do in a single go
2: I already know David's answer to this.
0: Are we traveling or are we local? You're in your hometown. One. You want to do one? We have been pacing ourselves locally Ah. forever. When we first started Room Escape Artist, there were only a handful of games in the whole region. And so we were legitimately afraid of running out of games. But even after the boom happened, we still kept it to one, maybe two locally per week as we were playing through the region because we just didn't want to run out.
2: I am in shock. I was expecting a totally different answer. Okay, well, ask him how many escapes he does when he's traveling.
0: David, how many escapes do you do when you're traveling? Six to 10 (laughs) per day, but it can be more. I think the most we've done was 17 and 34 hours. What's your preferred cadence? I like two a
1: night. Uh, I think one is not enough and three is too many. So two, you know, it's like a like a good musical. You go to the first act, you have an intermission, you go to the second act. And uh, if it leaves you wanting more, well, that's a good thing, isn't it?
0: When we travel, we do a lot of research to make sure that we're really only playing very high quality or very interesting stuff, because the more games you play, the more the bad experiences, they kind of amplify and compound on themselves. Uh, we also schedule lots of meal breaks. We'll make an event of it.
1: I really appreciate that dedication to planning, you know, that level of detail and self-care. And, you know, it's it's nice to like leave a little room for improvisation or spontaneity also, I think that your approach sounds pretty awesome. That sounds like a kind of trip I'd like to try.
0: That's entirely my wife Lisa's doing. She is the the planner. And when we travel with other like diehard escape room players and they're all like, we want to play like 14 games a day. She'll be like, no, this is the cadence we're playing at. These are where the food breaks are going to be. And this is how it's going to be because we want to make sure we actually enjoy all of them.
2: Well, Miles, you know, David and Lisa, they organize these escape room tours for people
0: oh that's a great idea we get like 24 to 50 people who come out for the same trip it's a giant you talk about scheduling puzzle lisa solves the the most epic scheduling puzzle we latch ourselves on to a couple of companies and take them over for a few days yes it's so much fun and it attracts some of the most fun people and some of the most interesting people we have some people who've come on all of the tours and then we always have first timers and it just always feels like it's just the tribe it's the it's the right group of people well that sounds really fun
2: i like how this turned into miles somehow interviewing david like- <laughs> <laughs> i know
0: i know <laughs> Do you find yourself introducing a lot of new players to this?
1: You know, I honestly, I care less about who's my best puzzle solver. I go through my phone and I go like, oh, I love her. I love him. I haven't seen them in a long time and bring them along, especially if I have reason to believe the escape is good. My background is in theater, which is why I talk like this. I remember being younger and I would go see bad plays because I just had time. Now I can't imagine allowing myself to go see a play that's bad in the same way like if I end up in a room escape that's bad I'm so cross because I really don't have as much time to do escapes as I want to and every bad escape that I go to is like a double whammy right it's a it's a good one that I didn't go to as well as a bad one that I had to endure so I hope I never do another bad escape in my life but I don't suppose there's anybody who looks forward to doing a bad
0: escape agreed sometimes I feel like if I'm gonna go and do a bad one I want it to be a total disaster so at least it's a memorable one Yes, the
1: last bad escape I did, we were like splitting our sides with laughter. It was such a fiasco.
2: I did one that was so bad. I did this one with Max and Vince, who was also on Survivor Worlds Apart with him. Vince is a character. And-
1: oh, that came across. Yeah.
2: <laughs> this room was so bad. That after we left, Vince told us that he had to sit in his car for like an hour because he was like so mentally disturbed from (laughs) this game that he, he like he's like, I couldn't even drive. It was it was so awful.
0: So, Miles, when you bring new people, do you have any like tips or anything that you do to try and like introduce new players in as best as possible? I do. I
1: really try to make it cut through any expectation like, no, this is only for experts and smarties, and you could mess it up. I go, here's what I like in an escape. I just like us all to practice, if you see something, say something. Because the first escape I ever did was the basement But I had in my room was some friends of mine who I know through the National Puzzlers League, people who helped write and create the mystery hunt at MIT. We had my friend, Tammy. Tammy McCloud? Tammy McCloud, world Sudoku champion.
2: Yeah, she's one of the hive minders.
1: There were smart people in this room. We also had two randos who were in the room with us. And we said, hey, we're, we're glad you're here. Let's play together. When we got stuck, it was one of the two randos who said, has anyone tried unlocking this drawer? And this room full of, like, MIT Googlers, nobody had tried unlocking that drawer. So that, to me, left a really big impression that it doesn't matter very much who your players are. Anybody can look and see. The cool thing about Escapes is that, unlike a lot of the puzzles uh, and hunts I like to do, outside information is usually not needed, right? Like, nobody expects you to know... Uh, the capital of Croatia. If you're doing a, a mystery hunt puzzle or even any crossword, like you need some outside information. Pretty much everything you need is provided to you in the room. Yeah, I just tell people if you see something, say something.
2: Miles gave me this whole talk before we went into the room, and I give that exact same talk to everyone when I take them to new rooms, and it's what I follow all the time. It was basically like all these little tips and tricks that he ran me through on my first one, and I always run everyone through that whole same laundry list. Thank you for forming good habits, good escape room habits for me.
0: Oh, I love that. I give a very similar talk. The only thing that I add in is um, I tell them that their pockets do not exist for the time that we're in the room.
1: PG, did you play Escape from Gatto?
2: Yes, yes, that was amazing. The
0: co-creator of that, Andy Crocker, who made the game with
1: her husband, Jeff Crocker, they are Mr. and mischief. Andy is one of my dear friends from college. She's uh, like family to me. She told me, you said your pockets don't exist. That's a really good note. But she talked about in Escape from Gatto, which is a room escape set at a performance of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Gatto, there's a notebook that teams are supposed to find and they did the escape in one venue and then they moved it to another venue and when they moved it to the other venue they had to change notebooks because the notebook that they had had was the same color as the floor and the notebook was falling on the floor because it was behind a theater chair and it disappeared and people couldn't see it okay the color was no good they switched out the notebook with a different color fine this notebook was a different size than the previous one and it was a really easy size to fit in someone's hand and fit in someone's pocket. And what they found was that players were picking up the notebook and putting it in the pocket. The previous notebook had been too wide to comfortably hold in your hand. So people would open it because they couldn't just hold on to it. And I really admired that level of first of all, you know, play testing and then, you know, responsive editing when your players are telling you like, "No, you've made this clue too hard to see when we're holding it." Right? Whereas versus the other philosophy is like, "Well, you're holding it." you should be able to see it. No, your players have given you feedback. So you change.
2: It's so interesting how much the little details of a prop make such a big difference in how it's used, right?
0: (laughs) And how much watching and reacting to what your players are doing matters, which really brings me to my next question. I know you're an improv comedy veteran. Do you have a favorite improv exercise?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I really like rhymes, so I like rhyming games. There's an improv game called Boom Shaka-Laka-Laka-Boom What What, where the kind of the game is you set up an easy rhyme, and then your partner is supposed to do a wrong rhyme on person. So uh, it's like, you know, you would set up... uh, Uh, so I'm going to be multiple people. So I was like, one, two, three, four, boom, shaka, laka, laka, boom, what, what? Don't go through the window, come in through the, and the other person goes chimney, boom, shaka, laka, laka, boom, what, what? So, uh, it's like, you have to think of something that doesn't rhyme. I think a lot of improv is like releasing yourself of the pressure to say or do the right thing and just go with what feels natural. The uh, improv teacher and performer, Jill Bernard says in improv, we bang the table first and then decide why we're angry. (laughs) <laughs> Let the emotions drive it instead of being in your head. So that's what I like about that improv warm up. That was an interesting question, David. Is there a question behind the question?
0: I used to work for a guy named Jordan Hirsch, improv veteran from the New York and the DC scenes. He was very big on using improv exercises as a way of building other skills that he wanted people on his team to have. I've always enjoyed them, but I also feel like for geeky, funny theater people, it's kind of like an MLM where they're always just trying to bring (laughs) in new people. I also know that you design team building games, and I was wondering if there were improv exercises that you have adapted into team building game mechanics or puzzles.
1: Into team building games, yes, absolutely. I draw heavily on my improv background and my love and hobbyism. Uh, of improv for the games that I make up. Because improv, like music or sports, there's a lot of different people who approach it a lot of different ways. What really does it for me is the pure essence of play. It's all the crap that we were good at when we were kids. And then we became preteens and got in our heads and just got hung up on, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And if I do it the wrong way, everyone's going to look at me. Whereas like three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds don't have that mindset when it comes to play. And so what I like about doing improv is scraping away all of the detritus that we accumulated as we became grownups and reconnecting with the true essence of playfulness. It is a bit philosophical and it is a bit religious. There are a couple of terrific books that I really like by the um, game maker and and philosopher um, Bernie DeCoven, who writes about how we are when we are playing. And when we are playing with each other, and it's a really beautiful thing. And so, yeah, it can be like MLM in that I'm like, I want to get everyone in the game. Bringing my team building programs to the professional workplace, you can understand how there is a hesitance for professionals to be playful with each other. I have to create a safe space where we're going to play games together. And that means you're probably going to look a little foolish at times. But the good news is we're all doing it together. And no one's really looking at you.
2: Miles owns a company called Wise Guys Events, and they create and design team building exercises mostly for corporate groups.
1: Yeah, we make playful experiences for professionals, but really our brand is new games games people haven't seen before so we do events at festivals at cultural events and a lot of what we do is for corporate groups
2: i have so many people who ask me all the time for recommendations for their work group cuz they want to look for like a happy hour game really
1: cuz i never hear from you pg
2: well <laughs> you just reminded me to recommend you just reminded me to recommend you from now on
1: okay
0: then th- this was worth it yeah <laughs> academically your background is in musical theater Is there an element of musical theater storytelling that you wish would find its way into other storytelling or play mediums?
1: Ooh, what a great question. When song is deployed in... Uh, non musical theater context, a lot of times it's done to be silly on purpose, which is fine. I like being silly. And I think singing is a good way to be silly. There are a lot of really great improv games that involve singing. And some of those are probably asking too much for somebody who's participating in a team building activity, like asking someone to use their voice in song. That's not a low barrier to entry. I think it's a high barrier to entry because
0: many people have hang ups about how they feel when they sing.
2: I would click leave meeting immediately.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm game for almost anything, but don't make me sing. I
1: think something that can sometimes get lost is the reason characters sing in musicals is because they are expressing emotion that is too grand for speech. That's not necessarily true of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, where they just sing because, <laughs> because they're cats or whatever, you know, um, where they just they just sing everything. They sing hello, they sing their lunch order. In musicals, The transition from speech to song, it can be done well and it can be done badly. One of the movies I loved as a kid was a Disney movie called Pete's Dragon and there's a t- like unintentionally hilarious scene where they're all cleaning the lighthouse and somebody goes, "You know what?" and then she bursts into song. Like that's the transition, right? But like when it can be done well, when I listen to the original cast recording of Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George and Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters are like having an argument and she's telling him that she's going to leave him and she bursts into song. I get weepy from the first notes. Part of that is because Bernadette Peters is a legend. Uh, and her voice is beautiful you know i'm getting chills just thinking about it uh, i will do your listeners a favor and not sing the song that i'm thinking of
2: and miles <laughs> about to burst in a song right now
1: <laughs> we do not belong together you can pause this podcast and go cue it up and then you'll be like eh, that's not for me which is what most people say about Sondheim, which is fine it's challenging music to say the least
0: To me, the magic of musical theater is how much more comfortable and natural it seems for heavy emotions to come out very freely in song. Whereas if you were to do that just through exposition, it would come across as false or sharing too much or that was too much too quick. Once it's in that musical sense, it's okay for those inner thoughts to come out. And that's something that I've wished I could see done in a different medium.
1: Mm hmm. I mean, I think that Andy and Jeff or uh, that Mr. and Mischief, uh, you know, intertwined escapes and theater in a way that I don't think anybody done before that I'm aware of.
0: I'm not aware of anything quite like what they did. We had Sarah Wilson, who is our L.A. correspondent, review that game. I have not yet had the chance to play it. I've heard wonderful things.
1: And then they also brought a lot of magic to their Zoom program, Objectivity, which ran a little earlier this year. When I went to Objectivity, I I left thinking like, oh, I didn't know you could do that with a Zoom performance.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Survivor. Is that
1: show still on? (laughs) That's what everybody says. (laughs) I have a level of recall when it comes to Survivor that's, you know... High. If you met somebody who their favorite team is the San Francisco Giants, and they know every starting lineup, like that's a level of recall that people are used to, right? Whereas like, I have a level of recall about Survivor that makes some people feel, uh, you know, ill.
0: My wife and I have the same level of recall when it comes to escape rooms. Mm-hmm. And we definitely are acutely aware of the people who think, oh, wow, that's awesome. And the people who think that we're complete freaks. Yeah.
2: Why don't you tell David the story of how you even ended up getting involved in Survivor puzzle design in the first place?
1: Yeah, I was a super fan of the show starting from the first season, midway through the first season. I began watching with a group of friends and it was really my cup of tea. I really was excited about the challenge and game design. I tracked down an email address for the challenge producer on the show. John Kerhofer. And I sent him an email and said, I'd love to talk to you about challenges sometime. I have some ideas. I'm in LA. Maybe we could meet up. He called me and said, I got your email. I don't understand it. Are you looking for a job? And I was
0: like, well...
1: If that's an option, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll put myself if forward. If someone
0: asks you, are you a god, you say yes?
2: <laughs> that must have been a hell of an email. Did you include ideas?
1: I will, I will share this with the public in case it is useful. The best thing about my email is that it was short. It was a few sentences long. And that, I think, is what got him to respond. Because I think if you send a lot of detail or a lot of ideas or even a lot of praise and flattery, You ever try to return a long email and then be like, I'll do this one later? Right. And then weeks go by.
0: I love a short email.
1: (laughs) I didn't know then yet how on point a decision that was. Since then, John has become, I mean, uh, skip to the end. I've been a Survivor consultant since 2007. John's become a really good friend. I've stayed at his house. He's an amazing guy, a really nice man, definitely probably the most virtuous person who's ever worked in television, which is a low bar to clear.
2: <laughs> he is, John is probably one of my favorite people I know that work on Survivor. And he is still there to his day, just this jolly, giant, <laughs> like, gent- like, just so nice, the sweetest guy.
0: What makes a good puzzle for TV?
1: Ideally, it should be something that's kind of play along at homeable. In a perfect world, you can kind of see um, how the progress is being made.
2: So when you are designing for these challenges, do you design it from top to bottom or do you mostly do like the puzzle aspect or where do you where do you start with something like that
1: so all all i can do is bring in a kernel of an idea and sometimes it'll be fully fleshed out but more frequently what i will bring in well okay um
2: yeah give us examples
1: to your question david like what's a good puzzle the classic slide puzzle they do a lot on survivor it's not very play along at
0: home you can't really tell who's in the lead It's true. And at least one instance where I could tell that they edited it out of order. The integrity of the edit is,
1: you know, really in service of the story more so. Of course. You're seeing um, Dream Team footage intercut with the actual players and you're seeing second unit. That's why like when there's helicopter shots, there aren't helicopters in the air while the survivors are doing the challenges like that's shot later with stand-ins. When
0: like plates are breaking as balls hit, like I imagine a Dream teamer is throwing the ball and they break the plate and then they edit that to it because it's just better storytelling.
1: So the slide puzzle, I mean, they use it all the time, but I don't think it necessarily makes for the best TV. By contrast, a puzzle that's not, I wouldn't even call it a puzzle. They've sometimes had to like put numbered tiles into a box from like one to 100. Now people sometimes like rag on that because it's not very sophisticated, but honestly, it's like watching a progress bar fill up. You can tell who's in the lead. And although it hasn't happened yet, if somebody like made a mistake and flipped the tiles around, you'd be able to tell like, oh, they were in the lead, but they screwed up. So I think that is Really, an inherent conflict of like what makes a good puzzle on TV. Honestly, I think word scrambles um, still work. I know that they're very tried and true. They're not; they're no longer novel. But I think a word scramble is really good. But I like it when there can be a different twist on it. So, in Survivor, Island of the Idols, there was a word scramble that I contributed. That was something that I made a prototype out of with little wooden cubes, um, and I glued them together into kind of Tetris shapes. And I wrote on them with markers and I made a few sets of them and I brought them into the room and had the consultants play with them. When they're sugar cube sized, you know, you can solve it in a minute or two. When they're like more, um, apple box sized there's more manipulation. So, you know, better for TV. But I think that what I had brought that was novel was that it was a phrase where all the words had four letters in them. So they stacked into like a four by seven grid. And the phrase was, this game will mess with your mind which I think has a surface meaning that is acceptable for Survivor. That sentence has probably been uttered on the show. So I've designed
0: puzzles for television as well, not for Survivor. One of the things I learned from Scott Nicholson, who is a game design professor and big in the escape room community. Well, I've
1: been watching Scott Nicholson since he was posting board game reviews
0: on YouTube longer. I had learned from him that What's fun to play is not necessarily what is fun to watch, and when you are making a puzzle for TV, a lot of what you are doing is in service of the audience, not the solver, which is really a complete opposite mode of thinking from when you're designing an escape room for commercial purposes, where people have paid for the pleasure of solving those puzzles.
2: One of the things that I hated as a player playing these games that are designed for TV and not for us as players, for things like visual puzzles, jigsaw puzzle type things, we have to put them together in place. So we are not allowed to put the puzzle pieces on the floor, figure out-
1: That's funny, PG. I remember you putting a couple of puzzle pieces on the floor. <laughs> that, wasn't,
2: that wasn't me, first of all. Uh, he's talking about when I threw the challenge in China. Uh- <laughs> so we have to assemble the puzzle in the frame. We have to put all the pieces up and rearrange them there. It adds another level of challenge for us putting them together, which I found really annoying. The other annoying thing is a lot of these puzzles are double-sided. So sometimes you don't know which side is the right side that you're working on and they have to make them double-sided because they have cameras on the other side so that you can, you know, see the progress, which I, I again, I, I found it extremely irritating, but that's showbiz. <laughs>
1: Right. They're in the business of putting on a show. They're not really in the business of making the best puzzle that it can be, or they'd use a different design principle.
0: This has come up a few times on on another episode, but through quarantine, my wife and I have been watching Survivor pretty much from start to finish. Solid. One of the things that we've come to realize is we've been watching a lot of these Puzzles is that the way that the coloration works on a lot of the puzzles, some of them seem easier or harder depending upon which player has which setup. And I know they draw for spaces, Mm -hmm. so that you know is kind of the equalizer. But we definitely look at some of these puzzles from episode to episode, and we're like, well, this person has an easier puzzle to solve than the other person because the color contrast is greater or the pattern is more pronounced, is a really interesting struggle because they're clearly having to set different colors to make the storytelling easier and make it easier to say, like oh, this player has this color, and that player has that color.
1: Yeah, I'm familiar with what you're describing. I, I I know that there are threads on Reddit where they'll show like side by side and say like this tribe's, you know, since their color is yellow, they had to solve like a yellow, tan, and brown puzzle, whereas this tribe had to solve like, a red, white, and orange puzzle and the contrast was a lot stronger to say nothing of the fact that like survivor currently doesn't control for colorblindness
0: not at all which is uh, which is actually an area of expertise for me it's something i do a lot in professionally i'm always acutely aware of it
1: yeah there was a pretty important clue in island of the idols that somebody wasn't able to solve because he was colorblind i mean i think that that is technically a form of discrimination against people with a disability so that's not great but uh nobody ever said survivor was
2: fair survivor is not fair. <laughs>
0: One of the things that I was wondering is when you're designing for Survivor, how much does your your ambition for a puzzle or or game design collide with the Survivor aesthetic?
1: Oh, well, there's a ton of things that we just straight up can't do. There's almost never been challenges that use plexiglass, which is something that gets used in a lot of gags and stunts on different game shows. You never have anything that operates as an independent mechanism. Anything that moves has to be powered by the people. You know, depending on (laughs) which island location you're on, You know, sometimes you use coconuts and sometimes you use skulls. If there's somebody on the design team who says that they believe that magnets don't belong in the survivor world because they wouldn't be naturally occurring in the scenario, usually one person's veto is enough to kill it. And you could say, well, okay, sure. But there also probably wouldn't be like balance beams, you know, in a natural scenario. Good ideas die for a variety of reasons. And the ideas that are left endure because nobody shot them
0: down Uh, the gauntlet method
1: yeah you know sometimes like something fluky that happens during a rehearsal or the way that a contestant plays a challenge means it's something that otherwise could have gone on to be an all-star challenge gets shot down, challenge that I designed that's kind of become like my calling card, like my all-star challenge, which is called a crate idea. It just involves stacking crates in a 3 two, one pyramid. And all the crates have pieces of the tribe logo painted on the different side, but some of them are furfies, which is what we call misdirects or red herrings. And so the cubes have to be oriented in the right way. That challenge has been on Survivor at this point, I feel like six times, maybe more. And it was pointed out to me that all the international Survivors... Who draw heavily on our library of challenges. Most of them have done crate idea also because regardless of whether you're a high budget season of Survivor or a low budget season of Survivor, everybody can make crates. And you know, especially when you get something happen like the Heroes tribe builds their tower and then notices that one of their cubes on the bottom is wrong. And they have to strip the whole thing down and rebuild it. And they all fight with each other. That's why I say the work that I do for Survivor is creating games that get people to fight with each other. Whereas the work that I do at Wise Guys Events is about making games that will get them to bond with each other. So if I make up something that's evil or something that is touchy-feely, I have a place to slot it in either way.
2: Oh, there you go. That's,
0: That's really interesting. When you feel like you're watching one of your challenges fall short of its goal, like what's going through your head when you're seeing it play out?
1: Uh I don't know that I've ever felt like a challenge was falling short of its goal. I mean, the thing we haven't talked about is the contestants, because they really are what make a game succeed or fail. The measure of that is TV. So two challenges that I had a big role in designing, like they were an idea that I contributed that played not as they were intended but made for really good TV. And again, kind of I, I talked about bringing the improviser's attitude of yes and to something. And sort of like an addendum to that is taking two things that work, but that haven't been combined together and putting them together. And I was like, well, I think we should put a basketball hoop in a maze. And that way you can throw the ball from farther away. But if you miss it rebounds, you've got to go find it. Or if you want to get closer to the center, you're more likely to hit it. And we call it game of throw-ins. <laughs>
2: I'm hearing that brevity is key to a lot of your success.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because obviously on your podcast, I'm going on and on, but it's, it's sort of like there's learning how to deploy brevity and learning when to deploy brevity. So when they did that challenge to the contestants fought with each other and the challenge kind of became sort of insignificant in the big scheme of things. I think survivor still has a lot of pageantry and money on the screen. So they're standing there and these two contestants are squabbling with each other. And one of the contestants who was the controversial MLB player, John Rocker, who they brought on Survivor to s- mix things up. And he kind of spits, it, he spits and he looks at all of our flags and all of our pageantry and he goes, take all this stuff down and let's fight. Which I think is like <laughs> the greatest and most direct takedown of the entire challenge department. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to know who's stronger? Take all this stuff down. Let's fight.
2: (laughs) Wow. He's really trying to like get someone out into the back alleyway behind the bar. You
1: said that to Natalie Anderson.
2: Good. You know what? She'd probably kick his ass. That was what she said. She said,
1: come on, bro. He was like, if you were a guy, I'd knock your teeth in right now. And she's like, come on, bro. Like, no, you don't, you don't want to mix it up with Natalie Anderson. Come to think of it, She's
2: a
0: beast. You don't want to mix it up with John Rocker either. Honestly, neither one of them are people that I'd want to be in a fight with.
1: No, <laughs> I can't, I don't know whom I'd want to be in a fight with. Maybe
0: definitely them. not them.
1: Yeah, definitely not them. <laughs> and another challenge that I was really proud of, I had, a, I had some fun stuff that aired in Survivor Philippines. And there was one that, uh, it was an endurance challenge where they had to run between three stations and flip over two drums uh, you could look it up. It's uh, Survivor Philippines, snare the drum. And there was a Survivor contestant who PG, not, not sure if you're familiar with, Abby Maria Gomez. <laughs> knew uh, we were going to
2: go there.
1: She got mixed up about what she was supposed to do, and she kept scoring own goals. <laughs> like
2: she was scoring on herself.
0: It sounds like her whole Survivor career.
1: <laughs> the challenge, it was, it was meant to fry your brain, right? It was an endurance challenge that didn't involve standing still, which I think is pretty rare um, in Survivor. Uh, and yeah, Abby and some of the other players also scooping scored an own goal, and I thought that was great. But apparently, there were other people who was like, "No, the contestants found it confusing. Let's not do it again." To which I'm like, "But when they score own goals, they will fight with each other. Like why? Like that challenge has not gotten a second airing."
2: Oh God, I would lose my shit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, they would. You know, they were shouting at her, and uh, and and there's an interchange where Jeff goes, "Abby, do you understand what's going on here?" And Abby goes, "Not really." Um, (laughs) so in my opinion I think that that's good but I'm only the consultant I I, I don't have honestly I don't have the power but also don't have the responsibility of making the higher level decisions Survivor's fine they never rebroadcast that challenge and somehow the world kept turning it's not all about you know my ego and what I'd like to see
2: to celebrate the launch of the podcast we are hosting a giveaway head on over to our instagram account at room escape artist for details on how to enter we'd like to give a huge thank you to our sponsors who provided games for the giveaway thank you to alan lee of exploding kittens ryan placedid of perplexers puzzles ariel and juliana of wild optimus and ann and chris lukman of cu adventures The giveaway will end on Sunday, March 14th. So you guys do have a bit of time, but make sure to get your entries in and you can look at the post for details of how to enter. We do have a grand prize. So please write a review in order to be eligible to enter to win the grand prize. And there will be more info on the show notes on the prizes and sponsors.
0: When designing challenges, there's a little bit of a cadence that I've seen as a, as a viewer. Do the designers think about the shift between gross motor to fine motor to analytical thinking when designing these challenges? Sometimes it feels very natural and sometimes it feels like they're leaping across a chasm and I'm like, oh gosh, I can't imagine having to do a puzzle after having just done that.
2: It's awful. I mean, like the way a lot of these challenges go, especially in the beginning, is it's something really, really strength based. So you're moving these pieces and Jeff says they're heavy, but watching at home, you really don't understand. These pieces are solid wood. So they're anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds each, which is really heavy when you're tired. You're hauling this across this obstacle course and then you have to put them together. Then sometimes there's... Small things that like the fine motor, where like maybe you're balancing something, or I don't know, you have to do these puzzles. And again, this is all under like this scorching hot sun. You're dehydrated. You're starving. You're like, I, I almost passed out during the puzzle portion, which sounds ridiculous, but it's because you're so winded. You're anxious. It's hot. I broke out in blisters all over my back and shoulders from being in the sun. There's always going to be a puzzle that plays more to one person's strength than another, but that's that is. By design,
1: I think that there's a limit to how much they can curate and how much they can control. The schedule of television production is pretty relentless. And when you factor into account that like, maybe there's a challenge that they were planning to do in a water location and a storm came up and the swells were so high that they have to move it to another location. Survivor conspiracy theorists watch the show and say, well, they put this challenge in this position because they knew that this contestant was going to win. I I wish that they could be a fly on the wall and see how ridiculous that that is and that sounds. Because first of all, nobody knows which contestant is going to win which challenge. I mean, you can make an educated guess, but nobody knows which contestant is going to win which challenge. And the idea that we can just switch, I say we, uh, the idea that the challenges can be switched around on a whim to favor a given contestant, which by the way, They also don't know which contestants are going to be big favorites with the audience, except to the extent where they go, well, we're going to do everything we can to make this contestant a big favorite with the audience. But again, there's only so much that they can do when it comes to being able to switch challenges around. Here's what I know, because I I remember John talking about this uh, on a recent season that they taped. He goes, yeah, we had this backup challenge. It's um, uh, a bit tipsy. It's a balancing challenge that involves backing up slowly and holding a rope really still and stacking blocks on top of each other.
2: I've played that. You play that. Yeah, it's fun. There's a trick to it.
1: <laughs> it looks like usually the person who moves the slowest wins.
2: I have played it at like a festival where John brought in, like he rebuilt it. And so the secret to that is to not go hand over hand when mm. you're moving backwards. Is to keep your hands on it and just slowly... Hand over hand creates too much wobble.
1: Future survivors, take heed. <laughs> he goes, we had 13 of those built in case we ne- a challenge failed and we needed a replacement. And then... After somebody got voted out, we took one away and we had 12. And then when somebody got voted out, we took it away and we had 11. And we never needed it. That is the one backup challenge that they had. So the idea that there's like, um, it's not like Price is Right, where all the games are in a cabinet and they can bust them out and switch them around. There's no adjusting challenges To favor or disfavor contestants. Let me let me try to put that to rest.
0: Cochran is a clear example of somebody who, like, you couldn't predict that that guy was ever going to win one challenge, let alone like wreck a whole season's worth of individual immunities. I mean, my response to any kind of conspiracy theorist with this kind of thing is like, they've just clearly never worked for large organizations, governments, or corporations. Everything is just like. Oh wow! It worked. Cool. And also, people can't keep a secret.
1: You know, like John's comment that, like, oh well, strength challenge isn't fair to someone who's weak. He would go, okay, yes, you're right. Puzzle challenge isn't fair to someone who's dumb. <laughs> the the challenges aren't fair. They actually are responsive, and they want to control as much as they can. What makes the challenges fair? But there's so many reasons that a challenge can get killed. Like we really do. I mean, I understand that the viewers are tired of every post-merge challenge being a variation on stand on this balance beam and hold still as long as you can. I'm tired of it too. There has been a mandate that says memory challenges are temporarily not coming back. Gross food challenges, it turns out, are too easy to throw. Obstacle courses for 13, 12, 11, 10, 9 people are really expensive to build, and they literally don't have enough cameras to cover it. So it's going to be six minutes of television every time, no matter what. And again, show is still good. If I were in charge, would I do things differently? Yes. And viewership would probably go down. So it's probably a good thing that I'm not <laughs> in charge.
2: Why Why no to memory challenges? Are they boring?
1: There are enough people who say that they are boring, that they are temporarily not coming back. It's been years. The last memory challenge was uh, Survivor Koron. Um, Michelle won a memory challenge.
2: I want a memory challenge. Yeah, you do. I'm all like, I'm in favor of memory challenges.
1: <laughs> I like memory challenges also. I think you can make memory challenges really interesting. Uh, I don't even think that the memory challenges that have been on Survivor are necessarily the most interesting memory challenges that we could do.
0: I'd like to take a moment to let everybody know that we are currently running a survey for the escape room industry. Players, owners, especially owners we're trying to cast as broad a net as we possibly can to understand the effects that the past year have had on our industry. Please, if you haven't already, take that survey and share it with everyone you know in the industry. You can find it on roomescapeartist.com. Are there any concepts that you've learned from playing Escape Rooms that you have fed back into Survivor Challenge design?
1: Hmm. Yes, there was a, uh, so a really important part of any designer, uh, consultant, you know, game maker is to steal and rip off. (laughs) I did a wonderful Da Vinci themed room escape that had a super cool puzzle that I immediately ripped off and pitched in the survivor room. And I think it ended up not moving forward but it wasn't for lack of my trying to steal somebody else's good idea.
2: Wait, I got to know, which was it? Is it a room in LA? Yes. There's two, there's two Divinity rooms.
1: And if you think I remember which one it
0: was, you're kidding yourself. I
2: always get excited when I see escape room style puzzles on Survivor.
0: And I feel like they're happening more and more often, and especially in the last like two, three seasons.
1: Yeah, there was the, you know, first letters spell out a message on the Edge of
2: Extinction There was also, and I talked about this in another podcast, they got the boxes with the combination and Natalie figured out that the necklace that came with the box, the number of seashells that were separated by knots, that was the number of the combination. Uh, And then I also remember that she sabotaged everyone else's necklaces. Like she like smashed the shells or whatever. So no one else would ever figure it out.
1: That was great. And major props to Natalie, uh, the star of this podcast. I don't know. Um, and I thought yeah, it was clearly. it was great that she did that sabotage thing because I although I appreciated those puzzles being on Survivor as a escape room enthusiast I don't necessarily think that they were all that great for the show I mean I know that that's may may sound that may be a surprising perspective but I think that solving puzzles at camp it's not as dynamic as. People talking to each other, which is, I think, the essence of Really Good Survivor. And people talking to each other, I also think is more dynamic than people hunting through the woods for hidden immunity. You know, again, if I were in charge, I'd like to see the pendulum swing back to gameplay depending on player interaction and less about doodad discovery. But that's just not the phase that we're in.
2: I mean, that's fair. Though I would not mind some type of clue system where you would then find a hidden immunity idol that is really actually buried. And you do need the clues and a map to figure it out, not just wedged between some rocks where any idiot could find it. Totally. But that's just, you know, that's just me. No, I
1: (laughs) I agree. I think you're making a lot of sense. I think you're talking sense, PG. You're spitting mad wisdom.
0: I've seen from your Instagram that you're a legacy board gamer. Ooh, what's a legacy board game that has really captured your imagination?
2: Hold on. Before we get into that, can we explain what is a legacy board game?
0: So a legacy board game is intended to be played with the same group of
1: friends time and again, and starting from the first time you play choices that you make will lead you to do things like open sealed envelopes or tear up cards or destroy bits of the game or, leave your imprint on the board by naming a land or territory by writing on it with pen so starting right away your version of the game is not like anybody else's and what's more the choices that you make carry over from game to game so you play the game through you put it back in the box play it again the next day the next week or whatever and the choices that you make have ramifications and eventually you quote-unquote finish the game. In many instances, you are still left with a playable version of the game, which is now packed thick with inside awesome. jokes, and memories, and special references that are unique to your group. Or all sorts of the the calamities
0: games. that were the result of poor gameplay decisions. <laughs> and let me get on my soapbox.
1: Seafall. Seafall is the legacy game. The sine qua non. I understand that the reviews were mixed, but my experience playing Seafall was honestly like a highlight of my life as a hobbyist board gamer. I fell asleep at night thinking the next time I play Seafall, my first move, I'm going to do this and this. And if Greg does that, it's okay, because I'm going to shoot him with my cannon. (laughs) I, I wish I could erase my memory
0: and go back and play it again.
1: I loved it so much
2: oh all right. all right is it good for beginners
0: no <laughs> <laughs> legacy games in general are not great for beginners
1: the complexity is not the reason that it's fun the complexity is kind of the price of admission the reason it's fun is because whether it's musical theater a room escape or a board game what we really respond to is the story And the story of Seafall is about these kingdoms who have been on the shore, but not explored the sea for generations because they all believed it was dangerous. But now we've decided that we'd really like to know what's on those islands in the distance. And we all set up by ship to explore the mysteries of the islands. And that is what the game is about. And that is a story.
0: Couldn't have said it better, and I can't think of a better place to conclude. Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by roomescapeartist.com, your source for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room content and events. And we are so very thankful to our guest, Miles Nye, for sharing all of his wisdom and humor with us. Thank you, Miles. Thank you for having me.
2: Those are great stories, Miles. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Can I end with a bonus story that you can play after the closing credits music for the people who listen all the way to the end?
2: Yes, please. (laughs) If you're enjoying this podcast, you should join our Patreon. Some of the perks include a patrons-only Discord and exclusive bonus podcast content. Every podcast will have a companion after show where David and I talk about the interview we just recorded, as well as chat more casually about games we've been playing, industry news, and well, whatever we feel like, really. You can get access to this bonus content for only $5 a month. And a lot of times the after show is even longer than our interviews. $15 gets you access to the Spoilers Club, where we pick a game each month and then we will discuss the game after we've all played it. This month, we'll be playing and discussing Locurio's The Vanishing Act. Make sure you've played the game before listening, and we can spoil to our heart's content.
0: We've got higher tiers as well, and we want to give a special shout-out. Thank you to Ben Rosner, Brian Ressler, Dan Egnor, David Longley, Nick Moran, Omar Aru, Rini Soret, Richard Burns, Wesley James, Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Scott Olson. Breakout Games, Derek Tam, and Terry Pettigrew-Rollap. None of this work would have been possible without the support of all of our incredible patrons and the community at large. Thank you.
2: So if you like what we're doing and you want to support our mission of creating a global community of escape room and immersive gaming enthusiasts, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash room
1: I got a funny text from Steven Fishback, a two-time Survivor player. Uh, And this text came a long time ago and is out of the blue. And he said, I know this is random, but I was just thinking of the time That you waggled your head at a puzzle in a room escape and you solved it and i had to think for a second i was like oh yeah i kind of do remember that and it was one of those moments where you know i just had the muse within me and i was like i know what to do i don't know why but i know what to do and again i I couldn't remember why i knew what it was the right thing to do but there was a thin vertical column of lights and it was the kind of thing where If you shake your head back and forth while looking at it, then the lights leave a trace in your field of vision that made a shape. And that shape was what we needed to move on to the next part of the puzzle. So I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. It might have been at, like, Exploratorium or something like that. Steven happened to be in the room, and everybody was like, what is this? And I was like, oh, I think I know what this is. And I shook my head back and forth, and I was like, yep, it's an R. Uh, And um, he just uh, gave me a nice appreciation out of nowhere, and uh, I'll always take an unsolicited compliment.
2: That's awesome. I can't believe you and Steven did an escape room without me.
1: Oh, well, maybe this was before we were friends, PG, the dark days.